Okay, so I have been slated today, and I'm excited to do this. Um, I, I've been slated to do a, a Q&A, and I know you don't need the microphone to hear me, but we're just recording this. I assume we're recording. Every time I open my mouth, they record it, so I don't, I don't talk when I don't want to be recorded. Um, so we're going to do a Q&A today, and what I want to do is um, the, the, the series, Sunday School series is getting ready to start. And I don't recall the title, but I know what it's about. Uh, is about uh, dealing with issues in life like bitterness, anger, things like that. So what I want to do, and you can ask any question you want, but to start with, what I'd like to do is kind of restrict this more to um, life issues. And how do you apply scripture to that? Because ultimately, um, one of the things I'm always afraid of, because we preach theologically, but we also want to preach applicationally, I'm always afraid of accidentally creating theological eggheads who don't know how to live life. I, there are, I know men who have a great, great mind for theology, but they can't counsel their way out of a paper bag. They don't know how to live their own lives, and their marriages even aren't that fabulous. Um, you can ask them about anything you want theologically, but if it doesn't transfer to life, then... There's, that, that, there's a disconnect there. So I, I want to restrict to that. If you want to play stump the pastor, that's fine. We'll do that at the end. Um, when I can say, I'll answer that on another time. So I'm going to pray. And then I want to just take some questions about applying the Bible to life and, and doing so in a way that is accurate to Scripture. So let's, let's pray and then we'll have a good discussion together. Our Father, uh, our, our favorite verse here is Colossians one twenty eight that we proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so there's that very clear connection between knowing the Lord Jesus and living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so I pray that that would be a help this morning. I pray that we might be able to address a couple of things that maybe has been on somebody's heart. I pray that it would be helpful and that your spirit, most of all, would use the words that are spoken today to direct our hearts toward truths that we need to hear um, in a unique way to each and every person here. Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for this Lord's Day as we begin. Lord, we won't end our worship time today for almost 12 hours. And I'm just so thankful for that. We love the Lord's Day and ask you to give us the energy and the strength to do that highest of all biddings, and that is to worship you. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, so just to make this easy, what I'm going to do is just, we'll, we'll use the dividing line. We'll do a Republicans and Democrats. No, we won't do that. Um, sorry, everybody. Oh, great. The whole church just split. Um, so this side of the room, we'll start over here and take a couple of questions. Just going to do, we're going to try to restrict this to applying the Bible to life, any issue, which is broad. So uh, just raise your hand and I'm going to restate your question if I remember. I never remember that. Yes, Sarah, and then Jeremy. With the release of the national statement about homosexuality mm-hmm. and the understandably bitter backlash, especially on believers leaving the believers, what is the way that Christians can approach that, both holding to it but still showing compassion? Oh, that's a, boy, what a great question. Okay, the Nashville statement, I don't remember the exact title on it. It's basically um, believers signing off on a, on a biblical view of marriage and a, a biblical view of homosexuality. Um, and so I think we have to back up and address that issue first. So do we have a few minutes? I guess we do. 
Okay, um, but Sarah, uh, uh, backlash from Christians, that's the part I haven't heard a lot about, so, so fill me in on that. Sure. Okay. Anybody who wants to condemn the people probably aren't believers. Okay. So first of all, that's a mischaracterization. I, I, I don't think I know of an actual Christian who wants to condemn homosexuals. But now I have to back up because there's no such thing as a homosexual. Do you understand that? Nobody is gay. And John MacArthur makes a great point. He made this point this week. Um, Nobody would say, I'm a Christian. I keep robbing banks, um, and, and I can't help it. I'm genetically predisposed to rob banks, and so I'm just a robber, and you should respect that. It's no different. Homosexuality is a sin. It is a life-besetting sin. There are lots of issues that go into it, but nobody is gay. That, that does not exist, and I know that that's a good way to get shot around here, um, but the fact is, just because a lot of people say something is true does not make it true. There's a word for that. It's called propaganda. That's how uh, Adolf Hitler led Germany, an entire country, uh, millions of soldiers going around conquering other countries was through propaganda. Um, so generally speaking, one generation that says something is true has a lot of questions. The next generation is raised to believe it, and the third generation will die for it. And that's kind of where we are now. Um, here's how liberals think. Uh, one liberal uh, sociologist wrote an article this week. I, I can't remember if it was an article or if he tweeted it out on his Twitter account. Um, but he said that all of the people in, uh, in Texas who've gotten hammered by the hurricane, it's their karma because they voted for Donald Trump. So what does that mean? This is now, this is no longer a, this is no longer a, a fight over ideas. This is a fight over life because this is a person saying these people deserve to die because of what they believe. How is that different than radical Islam? It's not different at all. So taking this back to the Nashville statement, uh, first of all, uh, I, I'm glad that it happened. I, I don't know what good it's going to do. I think it's good to push back a little bit. Um, as far as those who claim to be in Christ and say this is mean, this is, uh, this is uh, uncompassionate, uh, we don't condemn homosexual people or who, who have homosexual habits. That's not our job. Our job is to tell them that God, however, will condemn you. And, and it won't just be saying you're a bad person. It'll be saying you will not be with me for all of eternity because 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 um, and other places make it very clear that adulterers and liars and slanderers and perjurers and revilers and homosexuals will have no place in the kingdom. And so remember, they're not the enemy. They are the mission field. They're, they're who we, we we're called to. Um, so I've been asked this, you know, what do you do if a, if a homosexual couple comes to church? Well, first of all, they have. I don't know if you've known that, but they have. We preach the gospel to them. No different than if somebody, than a couple who's not married comes to church. Um, then we preach the gospel to them. Uh, somebody who's doing drugs, what do we do? We preach the gospel to them. It's no different. I'm not gonna let them teach Sunday school, but we don't let, we don't let somebody on drugs teach Sunday school. We don't let any unbeliever teach Sunday school. So 
as far as to, to Sarah's question, what do you do with, with professing believers who are uncomfortable with this? I, 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 the only thing I, I know to do is just point them to Scripture and, and just say, look, we're not making this up. The Nashville statement is simply a reflection of what the Bible says. It's all it is. Um, but I know so many wonderful homosexuals. Yes, because they're created in the image of God. That's why they're wonderful. They're not wonderful because they are gay. They're wonderful because they're made in the image of God. And they need to know that. And what a shame it is that that image has been marred by sin. And so, you know, if somebody wants to get really, really upset, I think I want to say, are you going to defend God's truth or are you going to defend the culture's truth? Those are really our choices. I do think it's a shame. I think in certain circles that, that, you know, we're scared to talk to a homosexual, you know, and I'm using that, that phrase loosely, but um, you shouldn't be. They're human beings made in the image of God. You should love them. You should, uh, you know, have them to your house if you can and, and um, demonstrate what Christ's love is because they're no different than anybody else. Um, so did I sort of answer that or do you want to go back to it? Is that, okay, Yeah. So as far as backlash from unbelievers, unbelievers want you to die. You just need to understand that. This is not a fight for ideas. They want you to die. This has always been the case. It will always be the case. Jesus said, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. That's where we're looking. So they're, they're gonna always, the, 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 the bad uh, soil wants to kill the good soil. That has always been the case. Um, this is just the latest issue over which to do it. So, and Jeremy, you had a question. For, for men, we're called to provide for our family. So in our culture, we have a lot of jobs that are kind of driven to consume you. And so how could you give some guidance and encourage for a work-life balance to be able to do everything you can to provide, but balance that with time at home God made a barometer for your family. Um, or let's, let's do this. Let's, a thermometer, because nobody knows what a barometer does. <laughs> a thermometer. God made a thermometer for your family. Um, and let's use that, let's use that, that metaphor um, in, in real terms. If you take your baby's temperature and it's 104, you know something's wrong. So the thermometer does some good. The thermometer for your family, uh, the Greek word is wife. <laughs> because they're built, they're, they're built with an automatic thermometer of um, our family is okay, our marriage is okay, or it's not. And so the easiest thing I found is to ask Sylvia, are we okay? No, you've been working your tail off and I can't remember the last time I saw you. I don't know who you are. What's your middle name? Okay, I'm, I'm feeling out the wind here. Yeah, things are not good. Um, but the key word you said is balance. And I think what I would point all of you to is to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs um, is so good for us because we, we tend toward legalism. Okay, what is legalism? Why is legalism so easy? Because I can make a list of rules. Legalism says thou shalt not work more than 45 hours a week. Or legalism says you're lazy if you work only 45 hours a week. And we build these little rules in our mind um, because rules are a lot easier than thinking. 
right? In fact, I'm going to talk a lot about this in my series on marriage, uh, divorce, and remarriage, that the church has built a list of rules that keep us from thinking. So the book of Proverbs is not a list of rules. It is a, it is a, a list of principles that are generally speaking true, but you have to think. Have you ever read through Proverbs? Like just say, read a chapter or two or three, and you, you go, first of all, he's repeating himself. Second of all, it seems like verse 1, 10, and 15 are related. 2, 3, and 9 are related. Why couldn't you just organize it better? You want to know why? Because in reading Proverbs, you have to think. You have to stop, and you have to dig in. You have to flip pages. And so, Jeremy, to answer your question, balance and wisdom is always, um, that's the, that's the operant, uh, t- those are the operant terms. It's not what's the formula to balance perfectly. It's am I communicating with my wife in a wise way? Am I delighting in her as in Proverbs 5? Or am I also working hard as in Proverbs 6? And am I balancing those two? And you use the thermometer that God has given you um, and you, you keep balancing. It, it never stops. It, it, as soon as I discover the formula for having the perfect week that is perfectly balanced, then uh, I'd like to do that. But that's not the way our lives are, are set up. And so th- what makes you wise is not coming up with a formula. Here's the perfect balance. I've got it. What makes you wise is, am I adjusting this week to what my situation is now? And so that, that's what makes us wise uh, rather than, uh, you know, here's the perfect formula. Now, if you work a job that's pretty predictable and you can get some routines, routines are fabulous. Um, children love routines. Uh, half the time, behavioral problems in kids are due to the fact that families don't have routines. And, and just putting routines in place helps. But uh, the book of Proverbs, I've done this two or three times in my life. I'll, uh, this is back before you could do this, but, uh, or before you could do it electronically. I get my Bible and photocopy um, all of the pages in Proverbs. And whatever issue I'm dealing with, I just go highlight every proverb I can. You know, every time I've done that, I've never gotten to the end without having an answer. And it's not that it was a black and white, oh, I was doing something wrong, now I need to do something right. It's more of a gray, I was going in this direction, now I know I need to go in this direction. But easy answer is ask Amy. How are we doing? Uh, Okay, we're not doing good. (laughs) How are we doing? We're great. Get on to work. Make some money. We have bills. I'm running the air conditioner because I'm pregnant. <laughs> Good question. All right, we'll go over here to the Republican side. I know we switched. So life questions, how do you apply the Bible to it? Russell. Mm-hmm. And he recently invited us to his wedding. To a man. Um, anyway. Huh? <laughs> um, anyway, so our question is, how would you deal with that? We've, uh, you know, we've kind of determined that we're not going to go. If the Lord was gracious to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look at the calendar. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, our first thought was, okay, well, you know, it, it, it's a sin just like any other. You know, we're not going to say, we're not going to 
Mm -hmm. um, but because it's a public uh, proclamation of that sin that we don't want to. Yeah, you know, I, for me, and this is a matter of conscience, uh, for me, I, for some reason, the big question is about do you bake a cake for a gay couple? I don't know how that became the uh, the, the measuring stick for uh, for how you, how you deal with this, but apparently that that is now the new standard of how to deal with this. But, but for me, um, if I have a uh, if I have a a Mormon friend, you know, I'm going to tell him, look, I I can still be friends with you. I'm not going to your I'm not going to your uh, your organization. It's not a church. I'm not going to your meetings because it would violate my own conscience. Doesn't mean I don't like you. Doesn't mean I'm not thankful for your friendship. And so I hope you can understand that. that that's what I would do. Um, uh, others in a different situation might, be, might do something different. They might say, yeah, I'm going to go um, and I'm going to try and be an influence for the gospel. I wouldn't necessarily condemn that. I mean, we are in the world. And the fact is, uh, you know, pretty soon in 20 years, the government will be requiring you to go. And now it's a matter of civil disobedience to not go. I would just talk to them. And I would just say, I, we, we, we care about you. We love you, but you need to understand that we, we have a conscience and, and here's why. And that we violate our conscience. It does not mean that we don't like you and that we don't care deeply about you. Um, and maybe it gives you an opportunity to talk to them. The fact is, there's no such thing as a gay wedding and there's no such thing as a gay marriage because the government does not have the authority to define marriage. They don't have that authority. They've taken it, but it doesn't belong to them. Uh, marriage is defined by God. Uh, yesterday at uh, Zach and Hannah's wedding, I talked about the fact there's only been one valid marriage license ever issued, and that's Genesis 2.24. And the man shall leave his father and mother and shall uh, hold fast to his wife. That's the one and only marriage license, um, and it's between the man and the woman. So whatever they're going to call that, whatever the state of California calls it, it's not a wedding and it's not a marriage. It's just sanctioned sin, that, uh, you know, for you, and I don't know if I'd tell your friend this, for you, it's no different than saying, you know, I've been invited to um, a, a festival where everybody's going to shoot up on heroin. Okay, I don't think I'm going to go to that. <laughs> but if you can maintain the relationship, that's important because um, you want to love them. And, and um, uh, you know, you, you don't have kids yet, so you can invite them to your home and say, you know, come to my home. I don't want to see any affection any more than I'm not going to show affection to, to Kelsey right in front of you, but invite them to your home. And I mean, they have no hope except for the gospel. So um, you can be friendly. You don't have to th thumb your nose. I, I don't know where we got the idea that, that expecting unbelievers to act like believers is somehow the way to go. That, that makes no sense. You know, well, if, you know, you're... Yeah, well, let me put it this way. If you're invited to an unbeliever's wedding, two unbelievers, yeah, absolutely go. Well, if there's going to be a lot of drinking there, well, you know, don't participate. But they need the gospel and they need you. And they will come to faith in Christ. How did Jesus say? They will know you by the love you have one for another. And if, if we're just characterized, I mean, Christian church has enough problems with the reputation of thumbing our nose at people, which is different than condemning sin. That's way different. Um, you can condemn sin and um, and love the love those who are who are sinning. Um, so, does that help a little? Yeah. Tell them or tell them I'll I'll come to your wedding uh, or whatever you want to call it if you come to our church for four weeks straight. <laughs> and you can sit between them just so nothing happens there. Yeah. Another question on this side.
Sometimes I wonder about the wisdom of recording this, but uh, <laughs> yes, Anne. So when you're dealing with, we've been reading through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and you know, on one hand, Paul's beginning to start saying, you know, your, your, your old body is dead with sin, let it rain no more in your mortal body. But then you get like 7 and 8, and it talks about, you know, in Romans 7, 22, it's Christ. Yeah, well, that's, that, that goes to the question that where Paul said, I think it's in Romans 6, that, you, you know, do, do, we, uh, do we keep sinning so that grace abounds all the more? And he says, of course not. That's ridiculous. So what you just described is very, is very much the battle. In fact, Romans 7, where Paul says, I do the thing that I don't want to do and I don't do the thing I ought to do, there, there's a huge debate over that as to which time in his life is he talking about? Is he talking about the way I was before I was a Christian or the way I am now. That's kind of the debate. And in the context, I lean toward the, it's the way I am now. Um, because you have to kind of read some things in the text to say this is the way I was before I was a Christian. You're taking your theological presupposition and kind of imposing it on the text. So his description is exactly right. There is a battle. Um, the fact is that you have a leftover aspect of your fallenness, and that is our flesh, our, our, our bodies. I mean, ask, ask any uh, young man from the ages of 15 to 30 um, what sins they're struggling with, and you say, how many of you are struggling with lust? And boop, all the way up, yeah, um, simply because our, our bodies are fighting against us. So what I take comfort from is the fact that um, first of all, to say, well, it's my, my body, it's my flesh, I can't help it. There's never, there's never that provision made in the Bible. There's never the provision made to say, well, I can't help it. W- what does that lead to? That leads to uh, uh, complete apathy toward the law of God. It, le- it leads toward, I don't want to try to obey. So the way I like to think about this is, um, and then I'll go to something that Paul said at the end of his life, the way I like to think about this is what a person with cancer does. That they, they, they discover a tumor and they get very, very educated about that tumor. And they don't say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's here, so it's just going to do whatever it's going to do. No, they, they fight it. It's stuck to them. They don't like that part, but they get very educated about it. Here's, here are the times of the day I feel best. Here's the best way to, to treat this. Here's the best way to deal with it. And they, they um, become... Uh, strategic in, in fighting. And so our sin nature, the, the flesh that we have, our, our, our bodies and, our, and our, the leftover desires that we have, um, okay, it's the cancer that's attached to us. And so we get to know it. Every one of you ought to be getting to know your own tendencies. Hebrews 12 talks about the sin which so easily trips us up, besets us. You ought to know what yours is. 
or your five, whatever they are. And then you start to get to know them. You know what weapons uh, work best with them that, um, you know, with, with, with a particular sin, the sin of greed, for example. You know, oh, I love the things of the world. So for me, uh, for example, you would say, um, because of the sin of greed, here are some hedges I'm putting around myself. Um, I'm going to have somebody else do my finances and give me an allowance. Um, I'm not going to use credit cards. I'm going to constantly be helping the poor because I, I need to be reminded that things aren't important. And so I'm going to nail this from all sides. Um, but what I want to go to is there, there's two extremes that we can go to, and, and I think you brought up one of them. The first extreme is saying, well, I can't help it, and I'm just going to uh, do whatever. Uh, that's what's called the free grace movement. Uh, today, where uh, you, you can just say, you know, everything's covered by grace, so I'm going to just do whatever I want. You know what that's resulting in? That's resulting in adultery, theft, divorce. It's result, resulting in entire churches just turning into just pits of sin. So we can't go that way. We're not going to be uh, antinomian where we don't believe in the law of Christ. The other way to go, though, um, is to become so... Uh, enamored with perfectionism that now we essentially become Wesleyan where Wesleyans believe in uh, where sanctification if you're going to graph it for example or chart it you start down here you get saved and you're kind of getting better and better and if you if you graph a Wesleyan or Arminian view of salvation or of uh, sanctification all of a sudden you jump up and then now you're just straight across you basically have been perfected now they have all kinds of ways around that They'll say, now, I make mistakes, but I don't sin. Really, give me five minutes with your wife. I'll bet a nickel I can find some. And so, so the other side is to essentially become uh, hyper-Wesleyan. And we don't want to do that uh, either. I was raised on this side. I, I was raised in this system. And um, <clears throat> you know, I remember my dad saying, uh, the phrase that they used was second work of grace. My dad saying, oh, I just so badly want that second work of grace. And... How many works of grace do you need? One. Just one. The Greek for that is uno. That's it. Um, Because what happens is, by the way, John Wesley believed that with all of his heart and he never once thought that he had ever attained that second work of grace. He preached it, but he never thought he had attained it. Um, John Wesley, by the way, uh, I would encourage you, Google John Wesley and his marriage because he was the worst husband on the planet. His wife refused to be buried with him because he was so awful to her. Um, so he didn't attain that level. So what do you do? Well, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And this is where I want to go to what the Apostle Paul said. End of his life. He said, and you can finish this sentence for me, I have fought the good fight. It is a fight. Um, I remember hearing... Uh, the Dallas Seminary professor who was 80, I think it was actually Dwight Pentecost, and 80 years old and in the classroom and said, let's pray. And the first words out of his mouth is, forgive me, O God, for I am a dirty old man. Still fighting the fight. I mean, you're, we're gonna fight that fight. The last fight you have on this earth will be to have a good attitude about whatever it is that's taking you out of this earth. That will be your last fight. So that was probably too much answer, Sorry. All right. Okay, now we'll go back over to the libertarians. So, and I'm going to get Dave, and then I will get Darla. Sorry, he beat you by about four seconds. So, 
he stood up. Did you notice this? This is going to be serious. Right. In Exodus chapter 20, of course, in verse 14, we read, you shall not commit adultery. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a layman's perspective and the context, probably means no sex outside of marriage other than with your wife. Uh, then uh, Christ in Matthew chapter 5, he expounds on the, the Old Testament law, and he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. I want to draw your attention to the word woman, which would include what? So my question is, is it possible to commit adultery with your wife? I can always count on Dave for the most interesting <laughs> questions. All right. So let, let, uh, just to repeat for the recording, the basic question is, uh, and Dave rightly uh, defines adultery from Scripture, uh, the, the New Testament word for adultery, uh, porneia, just means sexual immorality of any kind. In context, it generally means um, sexual activity outside your marriage of any kind. So uh, th- there's a restriction there. But his definition of any sexual activity outside the marriage is correct um, if you're married. Uh, the old word was fornication, that was for sex before marriage. That was the extent of my father's warning to me when I was 10 years old, don't fornicate. I, I don't know what that means, and I never told him that. I was like 25. I looked up the word. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense now. I wonder why I was so adamant about that. Um, I had no idea. It's like, what, don't build Legos at midnight? I have no idea what, <laughs> what, what that means. But Dave's question is, he goes to the heart of the matter. Jesus, and he's right, is expounding on the law. In Matthew 5, I say to you, you have heard that it is written, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever commits adultery or whoever looks at the woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, And then he takes that more specifically. Is it possible to commit adultery then with your wife by what you think? And Dave and I have had this discussion before, and before you think that's a, that's a weird question, that's actually a fabulous question. But let me build a little uh, foundation for it, first of all. First of all, when Jesus says this, and I'm going to address this in, uh, in a couple of months, he's not giving legislation. Okay, we need to understand that every time Jesus opened his mouth, he wasn't passing a new law. He was giving wisdom. Okay, and let me tell you how we know this. He also says, and we'll cover this in a couple of months, he also says that adultery is a valid grounds for divorce, right? And we would generally agree with that. And I will define adultery for you in a couple of, in, in a couple of months. Um, it's, it's a narrower definition than you might think. So if Jesus is giving new legislation, a new law, that anyone who looks at the woman with lust for her has committed adultery in his heart, then how many couples can, before God, get divorced? All of them, right? So is Jesus giving new legislation? No. What he's doing is he's demonstrating that adultery begins in the heart. That's where it starts. And before God, you're guilty. And so you need to deal with the heart issues. That's what all of Matthew 5 is about, is about heart issues. And so, you know, if we're, gonna, if we're going to uh, take that as legislation, then every wife can ask her husband, in the last year, have you ever had an impure thought about one person other than me? Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm gone. Here are the divorce papers. Goodbye. I am issuing a biblical divorce. I, I don't think anybody here would think that that's anything other than crazy, right? 
the, the biblical response is, well, let me help you. Let me pray for you. I'm sorry you've been struggling with that. So Jesus' point is to, is to talk about the heart issue. How am I thinking about other people? Uh, one of the things I love about being a pastor is that it, it, it creates a filter. It purifies my own mind and my own heart because you are my brothers and sisters and I feel such a responsibility toward you that it, it keeps me, keeps my heart and my mind in the right place. But Dave's question is, is it then possible to commit adultery with your own wife? Yes. Yes, it is. And let me tell you what I mean. Jesus is addressing the heart issue of how do you think about, for example, women? How do you think about sex? If a man who is married thinks of his wife as a sex object, as somebody to be used for my own pleasure, as somebody that God gave to me as my own personal Disneyland, and that's her purpose is to make me happy, then I don't know whether I call that adultery or idolatry, but it's sinful one way or the other. He brought a wife to be a helper, to be a companion. Yes, to be a sexual partner, but they're equal. They're equal. That's why Peter is very clear in 1 Peter 3, 7 that you are heirs together of the grace of life. That doesn't mean salvation. It's not a soteriological passage. It means that marriage is a gift to both of you equally. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the Apostle Paul says that you do not own your own body and and your spouse owns your body and, and you own your spouse's body. It's not the idea of you owe me. It's the idea of I owe you. See the difference? So can you commit adultery in your heart with your own wife? I don't know if I call it adultery, but I would call it idolatry. I would call it selfishness. That absolutely you view her um, as an object, then that's wrong. And just so we flip this around and not pick on the guys only, um, I've counseled with plenty of couples who view their husbands as anything and everything except a husband. You're, you're my provider. You're my counselor. You're the one who puts a roof over my head and you need to bring home money. You need to buy me cars. You need to buy me houses but I don't treat you as a friend. I don't treat you as a lover. I don't treat you as my companion. Um, so it's possible to, for a wife to use a husband also. Um, that, that is possible. So um, surprising answer. Yes, I think it is possible. Uh, any way you think about that. So now, Darla, you had a question. Sure. Well, write this down. Respond with Hebrews 9.27. Because they'll love this verse. Basically, you can say, did you know there's a verse in the Bible that says that you only live once? Oh, really? The Bible agrees with my lifestyle? That's not what I said. Hebrews 9.27 says, for it is given to man to die once. Live once and then to face judgment. And so you say, absolutely, you only live once. Do whatever you want. And then you'll face God and you will pay for all of eternity 
for everything you've ever done. Every evil thought you've ever had, every lie you've ever told, every adulterous affair you've ever had, every time you've abused your children or your wife, every time you've cheated on your taxes, every time you've had a lustful thought, every time you've had a, an egregious thought toward another person, you'll be judged for all eternity. So eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's the answer. Just tell them to look up Hebrews 9.27 or, or give it to them on a piece of paper. Say, did you know the Bible agrees with you? You do only live once. But it's the part that's after that should concern you. So, good. All right, now we return over here to the independence. So, we got like seven, eight more minutes. So, okay, any question on any topic from any side? This is the scary part. That's why I only leave eight minutes for this part. Yeah, Joe. What do you think is the root cause of frustration and anger? Frustration does not exist. Frustration is a, it is a um, euphemism for I'm not getting what I want as fast as I want it. Frustration does not exist. Um, and I'll probably say tomorrow, something's frustrating me. I'm being technical here. It doesn't mean it's not a useful concept. But at its root, frustration is the fact that either people or circumstances are not owning up or are not measuring up to the expectations that I have for them. So the root of frustration is idolatry of self. Um, if you've ever been working on something, I'm not very mechanical, but you're working on something and it seems like after two hours, I actually made it worse than... Okay, I get frustrated. Why? Because the root cause is I'm angry that my expectations are not being met. So what's the, what's the, uh, the cure for frustration is A, the sovereignty of God, and B, patience. That, you, you know, God is not obligated to fulfill his entire will for the universe in my lifetime. In fact, he's not even obligated, ready for this, to fulfill his entire will for my life in my lifetime. That prayers I've prayed may not be answered until I'm dead. Um, things I want to see happen may not happen in my lifetime. So uh, I would say frustration does not exist. It is a construct that um, if anybody, if, you, if your spouse or you have ever said, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. What is frustration? It is anger in a mask of self-righteousness. Okay, now that doesn't mean you can't point out sin. You can't say, you know, I've noticed um, that you pay our house payment late every week or every month, and that's a problem, and here's why. Um, to say I'm frustrated by that is simply expressing here's the emotion that it's causing. I think that's a better way to say it. Here's the sin that you're doing, and it is causing me distress. It is causing me distress. That's why First Peter 3, 7 says, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Understand what causes them distress and don't do those things. So, yeah, I'm being picky and technical, but frustration, the root cause is idolatry of self. I want what I want when I want it. Good question. Yeah, oh wait, ladies first, and then Alfredo will get to you. Debbie. Mine is in continuation of frustration. So in helping someone deal with their frustration, they need, we need to help them get to the root cause of what is making them impatient, basically. What is it that you want, and why are you willing to sin when you don't get it? And so instead of, instead of dealing with uh, 
well, I want this thing. I need to make it happen. Deal with what you tend to do sinfully in response to it. That's much better. It's what we say in biblical counseling. The goal is not to solve the problem. The goal is to help you walk through the problem in a way that's pleasing to the Lord because you can't solve most problems. Um, So, yeah, thank you. Alfredo. What uh, Alfredo's question is, what's the best approach to share the gospel with somebody? And the example he gives is um, somebody says, well, I go to church uh, all the time. I think this circles us beautifully all the way back around to Jeremy's question on the, the, the answer is wisdom. The answer is wisdom. There, there is not a one cookie cutter approach for every human being that doesn't exist. So the more approaches that you can, you can know and understand, that's great. Let me tell you one of my favorites. Um, first of all, you, you take what they give you. I, I, I've, I've termed this chicken evangelism. Um, chicken evangelism saying, I'm, I'm too weak, Lord, to do this on my own. Would you bring me an unbeliever who will serve on a silver platter something for me to talk about with them? And I've seen that happen in my own life countless times um, because I'm a chicken, and so I need the Lord to kind of to help me out that way. But so the first thing is you you always take what they give and, and meet them on their own ground. Um, we had a we had a guy in our house uh, this past week, in fact, doing a little work for us, and he was really good at it. And the strangest thing happened. He he wanted to talk about God. I mean, he brought it up, and I was trying to get some work done. I was like, okay, let's see. I need to be a pastor. I don't have time to share the gospel with you. So. Um, so I stopped what I was doing and we had a great talk and it was a little it was a little uh, little uncomfortable at first for, for him and for me because I didn't know him but he did really good work and so uh, he was proud of it and so I just asked him do you know do you know why you're such an artist and he said no I said because you're made in the image of God and he said what does that mean and we just started this long conversation so you're just praying you're praying for the right words to say and, and, and I don't I'm not saying that I knew exactly the right thing to do. The Lord did that. He just presented this, um, this clear thing. But what you have in common with them is that they love life. They have hurts. They have a need for the Lord. They, um, they're human beings. And I think that sometimes when you've been a Christian for so long, you forget how to talk to people as humans. Instead of categorizing everybody as Christians and, and non-Christians, how about just categorize them as human beings and relate to them that way and ask the Lord for an opening for the gospel um, where they trust you and they they think that you have their best interests at at heart Um, now you can't do that without knowing the gospel Uh, asking somebody you know have you accepted Jesus that doesn't that phrase means nothing Uh, that the only reason that means something to you is because you come out of a context where that's been explained for decades I don't even like that phrase in our context but you can't use those phrases. Um, the, so with this particular guy, uh, he, he's very philosophical. And so we started talking about philosophy. He said, you know, I'm, I'm studying numerology and I'm studying this and studying that. And I just asked him, well, have you, have you thought about throwing the Bible in the mix there? He said, you know, I thought about that. I think I need to throw the Bible in the mix. Great. If I had said all the other stuff is baloney, you need to just... You need to focus on the Bible only. He doesn't have a context for that. 
And I know that I'm, I'm planting a secret bomb when I say read the Bible because the Bible will outstrip everything else. I don't need to be the power of the gospel. The Bible is the power of the gospel. Um, and so he said, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I've been reading Buddha and I've been reading this and that. And so I'm gonna read. Where should I read? The gospel of Matthew. Just start in the New Testament because he's kind of a, kind of a, a thinker. And um, so it's wherever the Lord leads, you know? And yes, you have to make opportunities happen. Um, the most fun ones for me are the ones that are clearly God's uh, bringing somebody to me. That, that's exciting to me because I have great confidence that that's the Lord's work. It's not me trying to beat down a door that is, is locked. So, so yeah, wisdom is the, the order of the day. Okay, we are out of time. I wanna just end with, with one admonition. Um, for some reason in the church of Jesus Christ, there continues to be this disconnect between theology and life. And I really hope that our, our time this morning has, has demonstrated that those two go together that, for example, the implications of my eschatology, my, my love for, the, for end times and the things that are coming, it drives me to love the Lord more now in light of that coming and drives me to love the lost around me more in light of that coming. Um, when I think about the fact that 1 Peter 3, 7 says that um, if we wanna do the theology of prayer, yes, let's talk prayer, well, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, if I treat my wife badly, that God's not gonna hear my prayers. Now theology and life come together. So my hope for you, and this is somewhat of a lost art, is that when you have questions in life, to search the scriptures. And you know what search the scriptures means? In, in, in the biblical context of that, Jesus even uses the phrase, you search the scriptures because you think that in them there, you have life. Searching the scriptures back then meant you couldn't do a Google search. You couldn't use a concordance because they didn't exist. It meant that you started at the beginning and you kept reading until you found the answers. I would suggest that. I would suggest instead of Googling, um, what do I do about a lousy husband in the Bible? Start reading. Just read and read and read. And if, you, if the worst thing that happens is that you read 200 chapters of the Bible and you don't find any discussion about uh, wives and husbands well you just read 200 chapters of the word of God and you're a different person now so search the scriptures find out what to do in life um, pray through things and say Lord I'm, I'm going to read the book of Proverbs and I want to understand how to deal with this situation so um, don't, don't take the easy way out struggle through it struggle through if you think okay my marriage is okay I want it to be better search the scriptures and, and read and find out. I mean, you have so much at your fingertips. Um, but I would encourage you once in a while, leave all tools behind and just get you and your Bible and a notebook and start searching. That's a much more profitable exercise, I think. Well, boy, that went fast. Well, it went fast for me. Maybe it was slow for you. But um, let me pray for you and then we'll take a little, little time here before our official worship time. Our Father, what a joy it is to talk about that which would please you. And Lord, we are hopeful that every person here will uh, take away just the desire to love you. And I think of Ephesians 4, 1, that you, you would have us to walk in the manner worthy, worthy of the gospel, worthy of Christ, worthy of our calling. And Lord, that's our hope, that's our prayer. We can, we can debate little points of theology and, and probably even be wrong on some things and, and, and that's not nearly as bad as 
not taking our theology and applying it to life and living lives that are pleasing to you. Because last time I checked, our reward before you will not be based on the theology we knew. It will be based on the life we lived. And so I pray, Lord, for each person here today to grow in holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness. I pray that the word of God would be a fountain to them, a, a resource, and that they would find that great joy in searching the scriptures and in digging in and in, in sweating a little over the Bible. Lord, I pray that, that each person here would grow in their knowledge of the word, that they would know that they can run to Ephesians 6 for power and strength. They can run to Ephesians 4 to know how to deal with their, their anger and with their bitterness. They can run to Proverbs 5 and to the Song of Solomon and to Ephesians 5 and to 1 Peter 3 and to 1 Corinthians 7 to, to be great husbands and great wives. That they can run to Proverbs and they can run to Ephesians 6 and to Colossians to see how to be a, a parent. That they can run to uh, the scriptures for each and every issue in life, Lord. And as they learn here at Grace to not take scripture out of context, but to understand what's happening both to the original audience and to how it applies today, how much richer is that, Lord, as we endeavor not to just take verses out of their context, but to understand the actual scripture itself, how rich and how rewarding. Lord, I know each person here has the Hebrews 12 sin which so easily besets us and I pray for them. I pray for victory. I pray for the fight that they would fight the good fight and that every day would bring a little more victory and a little less defeat and that our sanctification would continue to to grow on the bedrock of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is guaranteed our salvation. We pray all these things so that Christ might be pleased and so that we might be presented to him as a pure bride, white and clean. And we would love that and look forward to that day. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.